The scripture for today's sermon comes from Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. The word of God speaks to us. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made a spring up, every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is God's word to us. Thank you, Kristen. Well, good morning, friends. It's good to be with you guys. I'm excited to dive into this passage Kristen read a few of the verses that we're going to tackle today. We're actually going to tackle Genesis 2, verses 4 through 17. And so if you would join me in praying for me as I share these words and what I feel like the Lord has given me for us today, and I want to pray for you guys. Father, thanks for this opportunity to gather uh, it's, not, I'm not, it's not lost on me that this is such a special privilege for us to get together on Sunday mornings, your day, to worship you, to spend time together as a family, to, to dive into your word together. And I just ask, Father, that over these next 30 minutes or so, that this would just be a, a moment of, of transformation for each of us in this room. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to each of us, that you would move in our hearts, that this wouldn't be just a another sermon that people are listening to where they're gathering information, but this would indeed be transformative by the power of your spirit. And I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, if you didn't know, hunting season is upon us. For the first time last year, I took my son Remington hunting and he absolutely fell in love with it. He's literally been asking me on a daily basis for the past eight, and I'm not kidding, for eight months, Dad, when does hunting season start? Every single day before I put him to bed. And if you've had him in kids' church, he's probably asked you too. (laughs) And at the time, this was his first time going, he was five, so as a good dad, I didn't let him carry a real gun, but I did let him take his wooden popper gun that we had bought from Cabela's. Now, some people don't really like deer hunting because they think it's super boring. I think it's really fun because I get to go sit in the woods for hours by myself and just enjoy the woods and squirrels and all the things. And so the day that I took Remington, I knew he wouldn't be able to sit long, but he actually hung in there for about two hours and then he, quote, said, Dad, I want to go find the deer. (laughs) He was done with the sitting. And as we were walking around our property, I kept looking back at him as he was following me. And every time I looked, he was doing exactly what I was doing. He was walking like me. He was whispering like me. He was holding his his wooden Cabela's gun just like I was holding mine. And I could see him literally mimicking everything that I was doing. And you know what was amazing about that day is he didn't really, I mean, he was like excited about the hunting. He didn't even really know what we were doing. But he was just really excited to be with me. We didn't kill a deer, 
But it was a profound day for me as a father. When we got home, we were debriefing with my wife, Molly, and, and he was giving her every detail, every little detail that we had done that day. And he was really pumped. And I couldn't find a picture of us that day, but this is a picture of Remington. That's the face he was making the entire time we were out there. He was just overjoyed. He was just overjoyed to be there with me. And that night, Molly said something to me that has really stuck with me. She said, she said, I love when you two get to spend time together. She said, it's so fun to me how Remington wants to be just like you. And as I reflect on that day and that comment from my wife, and in, even in this moment, man, that's how I, I, I want to feel. That's how I want to approach God. I'm drawn to remember the love that he has for me, the love that I was feeling for Remington that day. That's the love that he has for me, that I desire to be close to God, that he desires to be close to me. And then in his presence, and only in his presence, I can know where I came from, and I get a deeper understanding of my purpose, what he's created me to do. And so I share that story this morning because I believe it's directly related to our passage. The heart of Genesis 2, as we've been experiencing in Genesis 1, the heart in Genesis 2 is the same. It's, it's an origin story. It gives us direction about our identity and our purpose as humans. Our origin and identity has been a key theme this past three weeks. These guiding truths of Genesis help us to understand where we came from and who we are. And so as I think about it, though, identity and purpose in our cultural moment, there's, there's a ton of confusion around these two topics, a ton of confusion. And last week, David did a great job of pointing us to what it means to be made in the image of God. And in chapter two, we actually see a continuation of really what it means to be an image bearer. In Genesis 1, we're moving from the creation event into Genesis 2, we see the forming of man the forming of woman, and how they are to live for God the creator. We see the initial unfolding of this father-child relationship that is expressed throughout the rest of the scriptures. And this passage is actually immersed, it's saturated with the ideas of who we are and what our purpose is, and the key ingredient to that is the presence of our heavenly father. And so the book of Genesis is actually organized in 10 divisions. And the same phrase is used repeatedly throughout the book to signify a new section. And we see this phrase in verse 4. And the phrase is this. You can open your Bibles with me. I'd love for you to join me here in Genesis chapter 2. Verse 4 says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And so this phrase, these are the generations, is that signifying statement. It signifies some new and additional information for us as the reader. And this isn't, this isn't a secondary account of creation. It's just simply saying that you're about to, what you're about to read is a further development of, the, of day six of the creation account. And so the writer is narrowing in on the creation of man. And next week, we're going to gather and, and talk about the creation of woman. The second thing we see in the context that we have to understand is we learn something new about God in chapter 2. A few weeks ago, Chad taught us that the name used for God in chapter 1 is Elohim. Used, and it's used over 30 times. In chapter 2, we're introduced to God as Yahweh Elohim. 
which translates Lord God. And this becomes the name of God through chapter four of Genesis. Yahweh Elohim is significant because it reveals that the God of the Bible is not a distant God. He's not a God that is far off from his people. He's actually a God who desires to initiate deep relationship with us. Yahweh is the covenantal personal name of God. The Lord God didn't create man and leave us to fend for ourselves. As we learn what it means to represent him, he's actually right here with us, just like any good father is with their children. And so this morning, I want to unpack this in two ways. So pick up with me in verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So let's start here in verses 2 through 7 with our first point, man's origin. In this parallel account of day 6, the Lord God formed man from the dirt. God shaped the world to be to be this life-giving domain where Adam, his appointed representative, would reside. The Lord God took a handful. He reached down. You can almost picture it. He reached down and grabbed a handful of the dirt, his creation, and he crafted the dust of the earth into a man. And he, he breathed. This is fascinating. He breathed into his nostrils, and Adam became a living creature. Do you hear and feel the intimacy in verse 7? This is a close relationship. This is God's presence is right there, breathing into the nostrils of what he's formed from the dirt. And so God's intention from the beginning was that he and man would be together. And not that they would just be together, that they would be so tightly knit to one another. This was to be a relationship where God initiates with man and man would humbly and respond to God through obedience because they trusted each other. Not because he had to, but because they trusted each other. Our being is directly attached to God, and we get our origin, we get our identity, and we get our worth entirely from Yahweh Elohim, who miraculously breathed life into us. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to, to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Once again, in verses 8 and 9, we see this, this closeness. We see God's presence. We see God plant a garden and then he places the man inside it. He creates a place, a specific place for Adam to thrive, for Adam to have purpose, and for Adam to worship him. God was so intentional to form him and plant a garden which was actually perfect for him to flourish. And then he put him inside it. He could have placed Adam anywhere on the earth, and then he could have sent Adam on some crazy quest to find it, but he didn't do that. Instead, he places him right in the middle of paradise so that they could be together in a father-son relationship. 
Have you ever seen the videos, uh, maybe on a social media feed or somewhere, of soldiers returning from deployment? Anybody seen those? I cry every time I see those videos. <laughs> the other night, Molly was actually scrolling on her phone. We were sitting on the couch together, and one of those popped up on her feed. And I wanted to watch it, but I also didn't want to watch it because I knew that I was going to cry every time. Why are these videos so emotional and so joyful at the same time? It's because the father or mother portrayed in the video has been separated from their children. They haven't been near one another. They haven't been physically close. And when you see the father surprise their child at school, what happens? The child is exalted with joy. And he rushes into the, to the arms of his father and they embrace one another. And I think this is just a small picture of what we're getting in verses four through nine. God graciously creates everything. He forms the man from the dirt and he places him in a sanctuary to be close with him. Can you just imagine the picture of when, when God places Adam there, the joy that he felt, the exaltation that he felt being close to the father. And this truth, friends, this truth, this is what sets Christianity apart. This is what makes the message of the Bible so profound and so different from all other religions. Other religions in their origin stories portray man as searching for God or being forced to make their way to God. But this isn't our story. This isn't our origin. God initiates with us and he brings his fatherly presence to us. We don't have to search for him. The Garden of Eden was a paradise. You could actually say that God spared no expense in creating it. The name Adam means delight. So it was the Garden of Delight. From verse 9, we know that it was beautiful and there was good food to eat. We also know that there were two divine trees placed there by God. The, guard, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From verses 10 through 14 of our passage, we know that a river flowed out of Eden. And that river watered the garden. We know the garden was divided into four others. We know that the land was rich in resources like gold and bdellium and onyx and I'm sure other precious materials. In verse 16 of our passage, God gave Adam everything good in the garden to eat. He gave him everything except one thing. And we're going to dive into that in, in the coming weeks. But to this point, here's what we can conclude. We can conclude that the Garden of Eden was a wonderful place, and the best part about it was God's presence. That was the best part about the garden. This is what ultimately set it apart from all the other places. And through the forming of the man and the placement of man, we see new depths of Yahweh Elohim. He's a good father. And he's not just a good father, but he's a good father who, who pours out his goodness on us. And so you might be thinking, that all sounds good, but Brandon, I've read my Bible. I know, I know that Genesis 3 is coming. I know that sin's coming. I know that the fall of man is coming. And you know, I think it's good to name this this morning. It's good for us to have that in distant view as we continue to dive into the passage today. Because if we don't understand our origin, the way that we were created to be in the presence of God, we actually won't be able to grasp the depth of what happened in Genesis 3. 
If we don't understand where we came from, if we don't understand our origin, we won't be able to comprehend the wreckage that happens in Genesis 3. If we can understand what was lost, it points our hearts toward the magnitude of what Jesus has done for us. It points us to the restoration of all of creation. It points us to the restoration of our own hearts and our own souls. And it puts Jesus at the center of it all. Before we move to our second point, I I think it's worth acknowledging that so much of what we just unpacked, God's goodness and his presence, is it's actually opposite of how our culture or people that we interact with a lot think and feel about God. And if we're really honest, it's sometimes how we feel and think about God. The opposite being that God is this far off God that doesn't care about us. You may have had these conversations with family members. You may have had them with neighbors or coworkers, or maybe you've even had them with strangers. But I want to encourage you, Christians in the room, if you're a Christian in this room, keep pointing each other to the goodness and the closeness and the presence of God, because this is who we are. This is our origin story. Keep pointing each other to that truth. Keep pointing those struggling to understand God to the goodness he, he is and has and the presence in our lives. If you're in this room and you're not a Christian, maybe you're just exploring who Jesus is. If you, if you don't remember anything else I say, remember, know this, that God has formed you. He knew you before you were conceived in your mother's womb. He breathed the breath of life into you. And he's offered a way for you to be forgiven of your sin and back in close relationship with him through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, if you're wondering if what that means for you, I would just encourage you, don't leave without talking to somebody. Talk to the friend you came with. Talk to one of our pastors. Talk to one of our deacons. Talk to our prayer team who will be up here after the service. We would love to have that conversation with you. So it's vital. It's vital, friends, that we understand our origin story. And this leads us to our second point, man's purpose. Man's purpose. So God formed man He planted this immaculate garden. He places, he kindly places the man in the garden. And then God gave him everything he needed for life and flourishing. And now God is going to give man a purpose. He's going to give him a commission. And we see that. Pick up with me in verse 15. The Lord God took the man. He put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. To work it and to keep it. And when we pull verse 15, 215, into view with what we studied last week in Genesis 1, 26 and 28, we get this really beautiful picture. God blessed man and woman and he commanded them to multiply and to fill the earth, to have dominion over it. And then here God gave Adam and Eve the gift of work to keep and spread the garden over the face of the earth, over all of the earth. And he's not leaving them to do this on their own. They're to do this with one another, and with him as their good father. Up until this point, God has done all the work. He's now sharing his work with Adam and Eve, and he's purposing them in the garden to work it, or in other words, to cultivate it. He's he's telling them to keep it, to protect it, and he's telling them to multiply, to spread it. 
And we can all understand the basic, uh, the basicness of it's going to require work. If this is going to happen, Adam and Eve can't view this this time in the garden as they're as if they're on vacation. It's actually going to require real labor, and in in a positive sense, it's going to require effort on their parts. Nancy Percy puts it this way in her book Total Truth. She says, "The ideal human existence is not." eternal leisure or an endless vacation or even a monastic retreat to into prayer and meditation but it's creative effort expended for the glory of God and the benefit of others our calling is not just to go to heaven but also to cultivate the earth not just to save souls but also to serve God through our work for God himself is engaged not only in the work of salvation, but also in the work of preserving and developing his creation. This is work. When we obey the cultural mandate, we participate in the work of God himself. And so I think we can conclude that work is a gift from God. And when we use, and when I use the word work, I am, I am talking about the work that we do during the day to provide income, but our jobs, and, and that's what I would call our jobs, that's the work, but I'm also talking about more than that. I think this mandate on God, from God is so much bigger. Work is actually what we do in all of life. So whether you're a stay-at-home mom, teaching your kids, as we prayed this morning, or you're a student in school, or you're a teacher, or you're cleaning the house, or you're cleaning up your neighborhood park, or you're a construction worker, or you're a computer engineer, or you're a doctor, or you're an entrepreneur, this, all of this is work. This list is long. And this mandate requires our collective work. As Bridgette beautifully prayed this morning, our collective work to build neighborhoods, to build cities, to build states and countries, and ultimately to build culture. Richard Pratt, in his book, Designed for Dignity, says this. He says, God ordained humanity to be the primary instrument by which his kingship will, will be realized on earth. The great king has summoned each of us into his throne room to take, to take this portion of my kingdom, he says. I'm making you my steward over your office, over your workbench, over your kitchen stove, Put your heart into mastering this part of my world. Get it in order. Unearth its treasures. Do all you can with it. Then everyone will see what a glorious king I am. That's why we get up every morning and go to work. We don't labor simply to survive. Insects do that. Our work is an honor. It's a privilege, a privileged commission from our great king. God has given each of us a portion of his kingdom to explore and to develop to its fullness. Can you see how big this mandate is? It's more, it's not less than the eight to five, but it's much bigger than just the eight to five. In our work, we are partnering with God. And again, you might be thinking, well, this all sounds great, but I don't feel that way. If this is true, why does work regularly suck the life out of me? Why do we often think about how much we hate our jobs or we don't look forward to getting up in the morning and going? Why do we dread Mondays? And the way we feel about work sometimes, this pain and this dread leads us to Genesis 3, 
which we're going to cover, like I said, in greater depth in the coming weeks. But for now, instead of following the mandate to work and protect the garden, to work it and keep it, instead of cultivating and spreading the garden, Adam and Eve disobeyed God by eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And at that moment, work and everything else was wrecked. It was thrown into chaos. It was thrown into brokenness. And and you and me and every human being that's existed since then has joined in with them in that. And so from the beginning, work was intended to be good. It was actually given to us before the fall. So we know that it was good. And so maybe you feel like work is a necessary evil. or It's more of a necessary evil than something good. I think we can easily turn work into a place where we seek to find our identity. We can turn it into a place where we seek to find fulfillment and worth instead of finding those things in God. We struggle oftentimes to see work as good and we view it simply as a means to an end. It can either feel pointless and sometimes it can feel like just a way to get a paycheck or it can dominate our lives. The other tendency is that we overwork. It dominates our lives and it consumes us and it consumes our families. We all share in these tendencies. And so my question is, can you see how badly we need Jesus? Can you see how desperate we are to have our true identity and origin redeemed? Can you see how badly we need our purpose, the purpose of work in our lives to be reshaped by Jesus. Jesus is actually in the work of redeeming all things, including our origin and including our work. He redeems the work that all of us have in front of us. God wants to use you and me to bring order to chaos around us. And he wants to do that through our work. He wants to use us to bless others and to cultivate his creation and spread his goodness. And so as followers of Jesus, we've been redeemed to recover this perspective of work. Earlier this week, uh, my, my house will seemingly overnight become in dis- disarray, just disorganized in, in chaos. It sometimes feels like a strong wind blows through my house at night and just knocks everything on the floor. And I I live with uh, four other small humans that are often the culprits. But if I'm honest, I I contribute to that as well. And earlier this week, Molly and I's bedroom was was in disarray. It was a little chaotic. And again, that was probably my fault. I had done some laundry earlier in the week, and I was in this weird habit. Maybe you can relate, maybe you can't. I was in this weird habit of taking this huge pile of clean clothes and it was, on my, it was on my floor in the morning. So I'd wake up and I'd pick up the big pile and I'd put it on the bed with great intentions to put it up later in the day. But then I would show up and I would look at the pile of clothes when I was about to go to sleep and I would pick it back up and I'd put it back on the floor <laughs> thinking that tomorrow I'm gonna put those clothes up. And it was just this perpetual endless cycle for like a week and a half. And my wife, Molly, graciously brought order to chaos while I was at work last Monday. So I came home from work on Tuesday and I opened my door to drop my bag off and it was like a breath of fresh air just hit me in the face. The room was in order. My clothes were hung up. It smelled good. And her work, and I think Lucy helped her, our oldest daughter helped her, and her work, whatever it took, a couple of hours, an hour or two, really blessed me. 
And I use that as like a small example, but like that is work. Like she was cleaning our room to bless me and her work on my behalf was a gift. And so Jesus, Jesus is the one who gives our work meaning. Now, I don't know if Molly was thinking in that moment, like I'm doing this for Jesus, but maybe she was, she probably was. But Jesus, Jesus is the one who redeems our work. He's the one who makes our work a sacred endeavor. All that we're doing, it's a sacred endeavor. We see this truth in Colossians 3.17. It says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Verse 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So we have to remember, there's the thing that you do, and then there's the thing that you do, and that's serving Jesus. There's the boss that you work for, and then there's the actual boss that you work for, Jesus. And so here's my question to you. If you're going to write something down, write this question down because I want you to think about it. How would embracing this reality change your perception of what you do, even if you hate your job? How would embracing this reality change the perception of what you do, even if you're not looking forward to the work that's in front of you? I would encourage you guys this week or today, think about that question. Take it to the Lord. Okay, so how do we apply this? I want to give you guys just a, a few simple, simple practicals as we close. So as redeemed followers of Jesus, we should work hard. We should work hard. Every day. We have to remember who our true boss is, that Jesus is our true boss. God assigns you the work that you have now. And so we can embrace that. We can enjoy it. We can, we can work hard at it. Be on time to your jobs. Give it all that you have. Be the best in your particular field that you can be, whatever you're doing. Seek to become an expert, not for your glory, but for God's glory. Amen. Do it for him. We are made to be representatives of who he is in this world. Second application Second practical, don't expect work to be easy. <laughs> don't expect to work to be easy because it's broken. We live in a fallen moment. Bob Thune puts it this way. He says, don't expect life at work to be peachy. We all know the way too happy Christians who go to work thinking that since they love Jesus, everything's going to work out. It's not. You might miss your quota. You might lose a client. You might get fired. You might have conflict with your boss or your coworkers. These things don't mean that Jesus doesn't love you or that God is punishing you. Rather, they are the inevitable result of living in a fallen world. He says, remember, thorns and thistles. Work is cursed. Work is affected by the fall. Work doesn't always work the way it should. So have a massively God-sized view of the holiness of work. But be realistic about the fall too, because Jesus hasn't come back yet. He is, but he hasn't come back yet. Third and last, practice rest. Practice the Sabbath. 
we have to remember that we aren't machines. So if your tendency is to overwork, remember, you're not a machine. You're a human. God worked for six days in creation, and he rested on the seventh. Likewise, we were made to work six days and to rest one. We were also called, and at all times, we rest in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. So because of our origin, because of our purpose, that God has given us our lives and all the work that we do matter. Our work is a sacred endeavor. We are partnering with God to usher forth his kingdom, to make his glory known through all the earth and to bless others. Please pray with me.